year is one that I didn't see coming at least until July and that is that I, along with the hardcore cyclists around Australia and probably around the world, have no Tour de France to watch through the long uh, draft of winter. And I'm seriously suffering withdrawal symptoms. There's no replays to, well, there are replays of previous um, tours, but nothing from this year. It's been delayed because of the worldwide nature of this pandemic. Professional cycling's uh, one area of sport that's had its share of controversy, isn't it? Uh, specifically drug taking and doping, which was so much a part of the culture of the sport. Now, just to go on the record, I have never done drugs uh, while cycling. The closest I've come is some Panadol. And um, probably the closest I've come to seriously desiring something in terms of performance enhancing was just recently when uh, my son Josh and Simon, I'll say a big hello to Simon out there at um, Eagles Corner, we'd done a bit of a tour out around Rosewhite, Cancuna and came back. We, we got back to Yakandana and we were starving. And so what do you do? You call into Gumtree Pies and, uh, and we just had a pie. We did not inject them. We inhaled them and, uh, and seriously they were... Uh, they weren't actually really performance enhancing, they were more like ballast than benefit, but boy, they were really appreciated, I can tell you that. What I want you to do for a moment though is just imagine um, that you are a professional cyclist or something uh, you probably may not have conceived of before, uh, but you rode clean. In other words, you rode without those performance enhancing drugs and then consistently found yourself being beaten by someone who you knew was a drug cheat. How would you feel about that? How would you feel to stand second place on the podium, which has probably happened uh, in professional cycling, knowing that the person who's standing there in first place has actually got there because <clears throat> they have done drugs? It wouldn't be a great feeling, would it? It'd be pretty tempting to... Uh, think that, you know, when the opportunity comes around, maybe I'll just even out the playing field and do what they're doing. And the fact is, um, being a person of integrity sometimes does come at a cost. One of the realities of this fallen world that we live in is that there will be times, many times perhaps, when acting with integrity actually will come uh, at some personal cost or at some personal risk. It might be in the sporting area. I, I don't know if you remember Adam Gilchrist, Australian wicketkeeper batsman, determined that he would walk if he knew that he had snicked the ball and been caught behind. And I suspect that there were times when he walked. If he hadn't, he may have been given not out because the umpire may not have heard the, the snick or the, the ball hitting the bat. And so there was a price for him to pay. I was thinking about this too. It, it can happen when you're selling property. When we were selling our property in Mailer's Flat just before moving to Wodonga, a week away from the actual date of settlement when all the money was to be exchanged, uh, I discovered that the big concrete tank, 30,000 litre tank, which I assumed was full because it was the end of winter, was actually empty. I popped it open to have a look and there was no water. And there was no water because there was a big leak. And so I was faced with this dilemma. Do I tell the new owners? Should I actually fess up to the fact that this tank that they assumed was going to be full of water for them when they came 
was pretty much bone dry. And just um, so that you know the answer to that question, um, I did actually tell the owner, uh, the incoming owner, and he was very good about it and very much appreciated the fact that I told him. But it could have come at some significant cost to me. I was prepared, if I had to, to say I will buy a new tank because you bought the property on the assumption that this tank was actually in good condition. And even in the context of, uh, of dating, young people, I speak directly to you about this. There are decisions that you have to make uh, that are quite hard. And making a decision of integrity around a sexual relationship before marriage will come at a cost. The world around us says there's nothing wrong with having sex before you get married. To say, no, I'm going to do it God's way uh, will mean people will look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Everything inside you might even resist that. Uh, but let me just say too, walking the road of integrity before God has its blessings and its benefits. Because here's the thing, and this is where we're going to explore a little bit today. The scripture is filled with encouragement for those who choose integrity over expediency. For those who choose to do the right thing, even though it might be potentially to their disadvantage, as was the case potentially for uh, Boaz, as we will see. Because doing the right thing, being a person of obedience, integrity, provides an opportunity for God to work through us in a way that he may not be able to otherwise. Well, as I said, we're going to look at the final chapter of the book of Ruth today where we see Boaz, who has been a major player in the last couple of chapters, act in a manner that could potentially have put him at a disadvantage. He could have missed the opportunity to enlarge his property, perhaps missing the opportunity to marry Ruth, uh, but he acted with integrity nonetheless. And we see God working through that because God's a, a big picture God. And that's the broad brush title for this message today, the big picture God. One of the things that we've seen through this whole book of Ruth is how God is just working out his purposes through the activities of his people and his, and his nation, uh, consistently working out his sovereign purposes in the lives of his people, doing that to bring glory to his name. And the way that he often does that is through the obedience and integrity of his people when it sometimes might be easier for them to act inappropriately or compromise. One of the uh, passages that uh, came to mind as I was thinking about this is James chapter 5, verse 16, where James says the prayers of a righteous man are very effective. In other words, a reminder to us that God works through the faithful obedience of his people and we'll see that in the life of Boaz. Well, last week I spoke a little bit tongue-in-cheek about how to find a spouse. And uh, in chapter 3 we have a description of what was a culturally appropriate way for a woman in the ancient Near East, not the modern times, you might remember, uh, to approach a man whom she wish, wished to marry. And in that context uh, we made the observation that Boaz was a man of right reputation right relationship, right resources and right resolve. He was a man of integrity 
and to the single guys in the church or any single guys listening who may one day want to be married, let me say this and I'll shoot this as straight as I can, this is the kind of person that young women are looking for. A young Christian woman wants to find a person like this, a person of right reputation, right relationship, right resources and right resolve. And so if you hope to be married, work on integrity. There's a piece of advice for you today. And in the moment when Ruth approached Boaz in what can really only be understood as a very risky manoeuvre because Boaz could have uh, acted with, uh, uh, with a lack of integrity, he could have grabbed at the opportunity, and I use that grabbed at in the figurative and the, and the practical, the, the, uh, the physical sense. He didn't do that. He actually decided to do what was right. Because he knew, and we see this in this passage, he knew that there was another, and we saw that in chapter 3, there was another who had the first right in terms of redeeming the land that had been in the possession of Elimelech. And so Boaz chose to do the right thing even though it might potentially disadvantage him. And so we come to chapter 4 where we read about Boaz setting about the process of what Naomi said in chapter 3 of settling the matter. This man won't rest until he has settled the matter, she said. Now, to describe the process of redeeming the land and the role of the guardian redeemer, or some of the older translations will say kinsman redeemer, would probably be beyond my capacity in the space of time that we have here. But kind of think about it a bit like bankruptcy law or something like that. Because there were laws put in place to protect the inheritance and protect the land held by families and clans. And so in the case of a death, as has been the case here, the property would be retained within the clan and not lost to the clan. And so it would be passed on as far as possible to the next of kin according to the customs. Now Boaz understood this clearly, but he knew that there was a relative closer to Naomi than himself who had first rights to redeem the right to the use of that land. Uh, in other words, that person's rights preempted his. And so we see at the start of chapter 4, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat there. Now town gates in the ancient Near East functioned in all sorts of ways. It wasn't just a thoroughfare of getting in and out of the city. It was a place where the courts were convened, where property matters were settled, where relationship issues were sorted out, that sort of stuff. They were kind of places where informal courts were convened. And in verse 1, we're told that the guardian redeemer that Boaz had mentioned in chapter 3, verse 12, happened to come by. Now, we don't get a sense of it in English, but it's there in the Hebrew. Uh, this is not a coincidence. Boaz was sitting there and it just so happened that this guardian redeemer came past. And what the author of this passage wants us to understand is this is no accident. Again, this is the sovereign hand of God at work. This guy just happened to come by. What do you know? That's a coincidence. No, it isn't because God has ordained that this conversation will take place in this space and in this time. And Boaz called out to him. The NIV says Boaz called and said, come here, my friend. And again, 
the English translation is probably not as helpful to us as it could be because uh, the author, in fact, the person who wrote this, is actually quite unkind to this unnamed guardian redeemer. For although Boaz would certainly have known the name of this person and probably called him by name, the author doesn't give him a name and in fact, in the original language says, Boaz called out and said, come here so-and-so, almost in a pejorative manner, a bit like us saying, hey you, come here. And one of the questions we've got to ask is why would the author of the book of Ruth have wanted to illustrate this person or portray this person in such a manner? The answer to that is that he wanted us to understand the contrast between Boaz, who has acted with integrity in all things, and this other person who has not acted with integrity at all. Now you might say, well, we don't know much about this other person, but there are some things that we do know. This person was actually a close relative of Naomi's and one of the questions we've got to ask is how much had he done to help Naomi and Ruth when they'd come back from Moab to Bethlehem and the answer is nothing. Although he had responsibilities as part of Naomi's immediate clan family, he'd done nothing. He should have done something. It was his responsibility, but there's not a whiff of him in the earlier part of the story. In fact, there's a suggestion in the text that this guy was kind of just sitting there quietly waiting in the wings, knowing that if, according to the law, nothing happened with Naomi and Ruth, the land that had previously belonged to Elimelech's family line would eventually just quietly be transferred into his name and he would be able to enlarge his own estate at no personal risk or cost to himself. In our context, we have what's known as a law of adverse possession. I don't know if you're familiar with this law. It's a law which says if a person who is not the owner of a piece of land has unencumbered or unfettered access to land or property, in other words, the owner doesn't interfere with them, for a long period of time and the occupant develops it in some way, he can make a claim for that property uh, under adverse possession. This guy, this unnamed redeemer, uh, seems to have been, rather than stepping up and helping, just quietly hoping that things would slip into his court, so to speak, without having to do anything. And those are not the actions of a person of integrity, are they? So you see the contrast between Boaz and this unnamed redeemer. And that actually helps us to understand the reaction to Boaz in chapter 4, verse 4, when Boaz raises the matter of redemption with him. Previously, this guy has been hoping it'll just quietly slip into his possession and there'll be no fuss and bother. As soon as Boaz makes an issue, what does he do? He says, oh yes, I'll redeem it. He doesn't want it to slip through his hands. The opportunity to obtain advantage by deception was slipping and so the next best thing to do was to take some responsibility. He was probably thinking, well, at worst, I'll have to provide Naomi with a pension from the produce of the land, which would have been expected, but that's all I would need to do. And that is 
until Boaz pointed out that his responsibility would also extend to Ruth, at which point he backs off at 100 miles an hour because he knows that if he marries Ruth and something happens to him, his land would fall into her hands. And so he says, no, I can't do the redemption. I might endanger my own estate. You can kind of see, uh, you know, this guy's, there's something just quite right going on here, is there? It's clear that the only thing he was interested in was his own interests. And here's a great point of contrast or insight, if you like, into the differences between a person of integrity and a person who lacks integrity. A couple of weeks ago when I was speaking to you, I was talking about how uh, when I was teaching grade six at the end of each year, I would talk to them about um, protecting their reputations and holding on to a reputation, easy to lose, hard to get. And as I've thought about it this week, I thought, you know what, if I had my time over again, I might talk less about reputation and more about integrity. Reputations are important and they tell us a lot about a person. But you know what, I'm not sure that God actually cares all that much about our reputations. I'm not sure that God would lose a whole lot of sleep about whether I have a good reputation or not such a good reputation with people. Now, I'll qualify that by saying this. Uh, In the scriptures, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So God is interested in our public witness and how people perceive us in terms of our witness for Christ. But I don't think he's too worried about whether people like us or not if we're walking in obedience with him. We worry about that stuff, but I don't think God worries about that. Reputations can be built on a platform of doing the right thing in public and saying the right things in public while underneath there's a facade of rottenness. A businessman might have a fine reputation amongst his peers, but be cooking the books. You know, we've seen plenty of people in our day, and I think of some of the more famous uh, for the last few years, who had a great reputation. Everyone adored them uh, until they were exposed as frauds or people who were conducting themselves abominably in their relationships, uh, and their fall from grace has been spectacular. And it's happened because their lack of integrity has been displayed before the world. What matters to God is not so much our reputations as our integrity, not so much how others perceive us, but what's going on in our hearts. Reputations, in that sense, are something credited to us by others and they might have some value, but only if they're grounded in the foundation of an inner integrity. Integrity is something that rises up from within us. It's something that we choose, that we nurture, that we develop in ourselves. In fact, I think one of the ways that the Bible talks about integrity is actually righteousness, right walking before God, doing the right thing before the Lord, walking in faithful obedience to him. That's the core of integrity, isn't it? It's not something that can be faked. Integrity, someone has said, is is what you do when nobody is watching. And there's, I think, a really important life lesson for us in this today. 
We live in a world of expediency. People quite literally do whatever it takes to get an advantage or an outcome that suits themselves. That's what this unnamed redeemer was doing. He was just hoping to feather his own nest, so to speak. No doubt there are still people who are trying to figure out how to dope in the world of professional cycling. There are people who will quietly attach their hoses to their neighbours' taps and water their gardens at their neighbours' expense. Just ask Matt about that and I should just hasten to say it was not Matt that was doing that either, by the way. I could probably give you lots of examples and you would know personally lots of examples uh, where people are just acting out of expediency. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah raises that complaint with the Lord where he says, you are always righteous when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? Why do people get away with it? You know, we're walking in integrity. Jeremiah said, I'm walking with integrity and I'm paying the price. Why do you let all these others get away with what they're doing? And do you remember what the Lord said in response? He said uh, words to this effect, just wait and see because I play the long game. You know, one of the biggest problems we have in our political system here in Australia, it's not the people that we elect. We have some good people in government. We have some good people who are leading us. We need to pray for them. One of the problems that we have is that we elect them for four years and so this cycle of elections means that our politicians, our political leaders can't see beyond that four years, at the very best maybe eight years. Short-term thinking. There's a nation not that far to the north of us, Northern Hemisphere, uh, making quite a bit of news at the moment, making quite a bit of noise actually too, the relationship that we have is being strained. A very different political system, but a political system that lets them plan for 100 years. A much longer game. They will be making decisions today which will bear fruit in 10 or 20 or 50 years. We struggle to do that. But it's even more true of God that God sees the big picture and looks beyond the immediate. He looks at the faithful and the people of integrity and obedience and he works with that. He looks at those who are acting without faithfulness, without obedience, without integrity. He will deal with that stuff because he plays the long game. He's the big picture God. And here's the lesson from the scripture that I spoke about. The big picture God that we serve works through the obedience of his people the integrity of his people. He works through that to achieve his eternal purposes. And we see that here in the book of Ruth. The decisions that God's people made, the decisions that Naomi made, the decisions that Ruth made, and particularly the decisions that Boaz made that we've looked at here in in acting with integrity, even though it may have cost him. God actually worked through that. And we see at the end of this chapter a map, a road map laid out that Boaz became an ancestor of David who became indeed an ancestor of Jesus. God was working out his eternal purposes, his redemptive plan through the obedience of his people. God's decisions, uh, sorry, the decisions God's people make in a moment are used by God 
and worked out in eternity. Let me ask you this question. What was the name of this kinsman redeemer, this guardian redeemer? Well, we don't have a clue. We have no idea. He has been consigned to, in some sense, the dustbin of history and anonymity forever. But God worked through the obedience and integrity of Boaz to frame the family line of King David. And as we know from this text, Ruth the Moabite, this woman who was from outside the covenant people, became an ancestor. In fact, the great-grandmother of David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. The God who is at work shaping salvation history to this day uses the faithful obedience and integrity of his people. That's why I say to you, the little decisions that you make matter. The small choices that you make in life matter. The example that you are to others matter. That little child that you mentor in kids' church, oh, it's just a small ministry perhaps you might think, but it actually matters. Who knows how God's going to use that child? Whatever choice you make, God is able to use. God works out his big picture plans through the small brush strokes of our daily walk of faithfulness to him and his purposes. And at the end of this book, and uh, we could spend a whole lot more time talking about this, at the end of this book, Naomi, who came back to Bethlehem empty and said, I am bitter, I am full of bitterness, is filled again. Ruth, who for 10 years had not conceived, uh, gives birth to a child. The one who became that ancestor of David, uh, the king, and ultimately the ancestor of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. God has restored them, as the scripture says, he has restored the years the locusts have, uh, have consumed. Do not despise the day of small things, Zechariah says. Don't underestimate what God can do through the small things that you do in life today by walking in integrity and making choices of integrity as you walk with him. This is a great story of redemption, a great story filled with promises, a great story that reminds us of the sovereignty of God and we're part of that story. What a blessing it is. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you as we come to the end of this book of Ruth for the encouragement that we've had from it, for the challenge that we see in this passage to walk with integrity, to walk with hearts that are in tune with you to make choices in line with your will, to walk in a manner that would obey you and bring joy to you. Help us day by day, we pray. Lord, remind us that every choice and every decision we make matters to you and that you can use our steps of faithful obedience and our integrity before you to do amazing things. We don't know who might be influenced by us in one generation, two generations, four or 20 generations. But we see that happening in this passage. And so we pray by your spirit you would prepare us again today to serve you well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.